All right, everybody settling in. Y'all want to get started with Sunday school? We're going to be in the book of Acts, of course. If you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Maybe while you're finding that, I can, I can pray for us. Well, Father, we're few this morning. We, um, we pray for those at home. We pray for those who are sick, Lord, that you would show them restoring grace, that they would be healed and would be back in our midst next week. Lord, we pray that you would use the streaming options that we have, Lord, that the folks at home would be able to be here with us through the video, that they would be blessed by the teaching, that that they would, in, in some sense, be with us even this morning. Lord, bless our time together. We thank you, Lord, for the the freedoms we still enjoy, Lord, to to celebrate Christmas, Lord, with our families, to gather and, and worship, Lord, and we thank you for this, this place that we have to do this. We pray you'll just bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, Acts chapter 6, we are slowly but surely moving our way through the book of Acts, and we are going to pick up in verse 8 today, Acts chapter 6. Verse 8, the last time we were together, if you recall, we were looking at the creation, the beginning of this new office in the church, the office of the diaconate or the office of the deacon. And this, this need arose for this new office in the church because there was a neglect going on amongst the widows, some of the widows in the early church in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostles had to uh, set apart some men for this, for this task. The apostles created a new office, you could say, because they needed to be dedicated to the preaching of the Word and to prayer. And so they set apart some other men for the, the work of this table ministry of of taking care of these widows. And so I kind of just tried to emphasize last time the, the appropriateness, the need of the apostles to devote themselves to the prayer and preaching and for these new deacons to devote themselves to this task that they now had of ministering these tables. But as we're going to see today, as we're going to see in the next few chapters, just because someone is a deacon per se doesn't mean that they can't minister into some of the, the ways that the apostles themselves do. So those categories, those offices, in a sense, aren't necessarily restrictive. Just because you're a deacon doesn't mean you can't exercise um, some of the gifts or some of the ministry that even the apostles do. And so really, today, Acts chapter um, 6, verses 8 and following is kind of a case in point with this, this deacon, Stephen, He's really a case in point for us. He's the first of the men called out in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. The first of the men called out is being designated to this new ministry of service to the widows. And this man, Stephen, was obviously not restricted to table ministry as we see here. And let's just pick up in verse 8. It says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs amongst the people. So this Stephen is no mere deacon, as we're going to see and as we'll see in the next few verses. Um, and I thought maybe this would be a good place. I didn't get to do it last time to kind of quali qualify some language that that even my, I myself just used of, of a mere deacon. Um, I don't think there is any such thing as a mere deacon. And I want to show you something real quick, and this is maybe a good a place as any to, to see it. But let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because I just want to establish what is mentioned here, an eternal blessing, you could call it, for the deacon. Because although our man here, Stephen, uh, will do more than most deacons do, um, 
simply fulfilling the office, the role of a deacon is no small thing. I think I mentioned last time kind of just in passing, and I think all of you guys already are aware of the reality of when you look at Paul's qualifications in 1 Timothy for the elders, for the deacons, uh, there's really one primary distinction, one primary difference between the qualifications for elders and deacons. Obviously, the elder is required to be apt to teach. The, the elder, just because that's a part of his ministry, that's a part of his office, that's a part of his role is to be able to teach. And so he must therefore be able to do that. But when you look at the qualifications overall, there really is no difference between the standard of holiness that the elders to acquire to and that the deacons to acquire to. Um, All of those qualifications are very similar, not only for the pastor and the deacon, but also for their family. The qualifications are very similar and they're really the same. Both of these men are required to be the holiest among us. And so, even though a deacon's ministry doesn't require the act of teaching, uh, we're, we're going to even see as we look at Stephen, as we go on to look at Philip, that um, some of these men do in fact take part in the ministry of the Word, even though that's not a requirement of a deacon per se. But I just want to highlight here, look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, for instance, because um, there is one more distinction between in these qualifications between elder and deacon, and there's a unique, special blessing laid out here for the deacon that's actually not even mentioned for the elder. It's kind of interesting that Paul remembers and thinks to give this blessing for the deacon. It says in verse 13, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also... Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so when, when, when I read language like that, I think, what, what else could a man want? Isn't that, a, aren't those, just listen to the language. Think of, you get a good standing amongst the people of God. A faithful deacon, the, the people of God recognize this man. He has a good standing in the church. And then maybe even better than that, it says, They have great confidence in the faith. Um, I I, I think that's probably one of the greatest blessings that a Christian can have is to have great confidence in the faith, right? To have a Christian life where you're not doubting, to have a Christian life where your faith is strong, to have a, a Christian life where you're just, in a sense, flourishing in the faith and in faith in Christ Jesus, right? So I just mention all that because in one sense, there's nothing less. I know we, 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 we highly esteem the pastorate as we should, right? But um, the deacon has to uh, attain to the same level of holiness and the same standard of holiness. And, and Paul lays out here this, this, this great blessings of being a faithful deacon. So in a sense, there's nothing lesser about that office. Right? It's different. It's a different office, but there's nothing, nothing lesser about it. There's gr- great blessings for a faithful deacon. And so our deacon here, Stephen, that we're looking at, you can go back to Acts chapter 6. I just wanted to point out that unique, unique blessing there given upon the deacon. But our deacon Stephen is a prime example. Um, it says here in our text, first of all, it says Stephen is full of grace and power. He's full of grace and power. And I said it says this first of him, but if you think about it, this is actually the third third mention here of Luke of recalling the the grace and the holiness of this man, Stephen. If you look back, look back at verse 3. If you remember when they were trying to pick out these these proto-deacons, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So first of all, the the text states for us that this is a requirement to be one of these guys, is you had to be a man of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And obviously, 
Stephen met that qualification that's mentioned there. Verse 5 again kind of repeats this. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They're just mentioning again his, his, uh, this grace that he had. And now in our verse, verse 8, it says that he is full of grace and of power. And so Stephen is certainly no mere deacon. Stephen is a man highly exalted as a deacon in the early church, spoken well of, spoken well of, spoken in, in a greater sense than most. Now, what is Stephen up to? In our text, it says that he is doing great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs. Stephen the deacon is doing great wonders and signs. Now, the language of great wonders and signs. Back in Acts chapter 2, we heard this language already uh, spoken of Jesus. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. The language is used of Jesus, of, of what he was able to do. In chapter 2, verse 43, this language is used of the apostles. It says, of the apostles, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And we're going to see next time in chapter 7, this, this language was spoken of, of Moses. It says, this man Moses led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now we have Stephen, the deacon, this language being attributed to him, that he's able to do great wonders and signs among the people. So Luke doesn't describe for us any details as far as exactly what signs and wonders that Stephen was performing here. Um, We can only assume because this language is used that it's the similar signs and wonders that Jesus, the apostles, um, these before him uh, were able to to do. And the language being given to Stephen here of of being able to do the miraculous in this sense is, is, is actually very exceptional that somebody besides an apostle is, is spoken of to be able to do these kinds of, of signs and wonders. And I thought, as I kind of looked at this section, um, I think what's happening here is I think that the Lord is, is providing for His church. Um, if you kind of think of where we're at in church history, and I think Tafik mentioned it uh, Last time, I don't remember what we were talking about, but just thinking about the reality that the church is many, many, many thousands of people already at this point. The number's already been used of 15,000 men. So how many women and children are believing as well? I mean, the church is humongous. And what does the church government look like at this point? We have 12 apostles and now seven deacons for many, many thousands of people. And so I thought, I think the Lord is just providing for his church. The Lord is providing the miraculous. Stephen's able to minister in a way that, that uh, provides for all. You can imagine the needs, the sicknesses, all of these things. As, Deacon's go, uh, as Stephen's going around and ministering, he's able to provide and heal and maybe produce uh, food that's needed, um, things, things like that. I think the Lord is just providing for his church through the miraculous. Um, I heard an interesting statement that kind of, I was listening to some MacArthur and on Acts, and I remember him mentioning the reality of how, he, and he had made the statement that there's no one in the book of Acts besides the apostles who was able to do the miraculous. And I remember him saying that, and I thought, oh, interesting. I've never kind of realized that. I never noticed that. And it's kind of been on my mind going through the text. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, uh, Stephen right here is not an apostle. And he's said to have been able to do the miraculous, which, which was kind of an interesting exception to what MacArthur said. I don't know. I know MacArthur's preached through Acts, so I'm wondering how he uh, would maybe qualify that. Uh, I'm sure he'd probably say something like, and I think, he, I think he did mention something like, it's almost like he said it without qualification and later on said, like, well, there was nobody like that wasn't with the apostles doing the miraculous. So if you're with the apostles, you kind of, you know, are associating with them and have that, that ability and blessing. But 
Here Stephen is not an apostle, and he's, this language is used of him, uh, that Jesus, the signs and wonders, the apostles, uh, signs and wonders. Stephen the deacon is able to, to do these things. So, we're in a similar situation here, because just as with Peter and John before him, if you go around town performing the miraculous, if you go around town healing, if you go around town just doing general good to the people, what happens? Well, persecution happens. People <laughs> oppose you. Um, people don't stand for that. So look at verse 9. As Stephen is going around generally doing good, it says, then in verse 9, then some who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now this, this is always interesting to me, and this has been happening over and over. I've mentioned it as we've been going through Acts. The boldness to just step up to the miracle worker, right? This, the, the boldness to, to challenge the miracle worker is always just bewildering to me, you know, like... Um, what is, what is the reasoning here? Like, let, let's go pick a fight with the guy who God is obviously working through. Like, let's, let's, try, to, let's try to challenge that guy. Um, it, it really does, although when we looked at Gamaliel, you know, although his, his very pragmatic reasoning, um, he, he kind of had a point in what he was saying. Like, be careful what you do with these guys. Like, you might find yourself fighting against God. Like, um, it might be wiser not to oppose these guys, but there is no, no actual ra- rationalization for sin. It's irrational. But who is this group opposing Stephen here? It, it calls them the synagogue of the freedmen. And when, when you read through that verse there, uh, the, the commentators kind of, there's a little debate going on. Is they're, they're trying to figure out, is Luke describing one synagogue the synagogue of the freedmen that's made up of all these different uh, locations and cities, are all of those cities and, and places mentioned, those, those regions, are all those different regions that make up this, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, or is it the synagogue of the freedmen and then a synagogue of the Alexandrians and a synagogue of the, the Cyrenians? And basically, the, the grammar is pretty kind of vague at that point. Um, it's kind of indecisive, but, but kind of when you just do a survey of... of some faithful commentators, the majority are, are assuming it's one synagogue of the freedmen made up of all these different people from all these different areas. And so I'm kind of just, I'm just going to kind of roll with the majority view there, um, that, it's, that it's one synagogue in view, and there's all these different people from all these different places making up this one synagogue that's opposing Stephen. But so what did all these, these, these people from all these different cities and regions what did they all have in common to, to form this one synagogue? Well, you kind of hear it in the name of the synagogue. It's called the synagogue of the freedmen. So all of these folks that are making up this synagogue would have previously been uh, people who were enslaved but now freed, or, or, or their parents could have been previously enslaved but were freed. And so they just all share in common this this uh, particular history that they all have in common, and, and so they make up this community that, that, that all meet together at the synagogue of the freedmen. They all kind of share that, that reality of their lives, and so they, they meet together in a distinct synagogue because that they were all previously slaves. And I just thought that this is another interesting aspect of kind of discontinuity between first century Judaism and the church because far be it from us to have any kind of disunity or separation or or class separation based off of our previous um, life circumstances, right? They have a completely separate church, in other words, in in other words, because they in their past life were slaves, Right, so they, they keep themselves separate. Um, 
from the other synagogues based on this reality. And what's kind of interesting is, is Cilicia is mentioned here as some of the, 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 the folks who are part of this synagogue, which Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia. And so some have kind of thrown out there that this very well could have been the synagogue that the Apostle Paul and his family were members of. Maybe Paul's parents had been uh, released from, maybe purchased from Roman slavery, and that's how Paul became born into Roman citizenship, because his parents had been purchased, and this very well may have been Paul's synagogue that's actually opposing uh, Deacon Stephen here, which is... And don't forget that, that Saul, that Paul's actually lurking in our text here, just not being mentioned yet. Saul's definitely here, as we're going to see. So this very well could have been our Apostle Paul's churches, which is, which is very ironic. And that's kind of the point that I'm making here, is that that's a distinction between what was going on there in the first century uh, Judaism there, is that they had a separate church for the, that the slaves or ex-slaves, but in Paul's churches, there will be no distinction between slave and free, right? That Paul would not stand for such a division in his churches as uh, the book of Galatians clearly and, and literally explicitly says that uh, those kind of societal categories are not to be divisions amongst us. And what's funny is these folks are, are separating because, you know, they, their parents were slaves, or they used to be slaves. They're not even slaves anymore, but they're still separating. Paul's churches, the people still are slaves, and they're still not supposed to be separating. So it just shows you how, how different the New Covenant Church is thinking about um, the unity that is, that is supposed to be there. Um, it's actually a kind of a relevant text and issue for a lot now. There, there's some trying to separate themselves because their great-great-grandfather possibly was a slave, and there's some people in the church whose great-great-grandfathers maybe did own slaves, and so they're separating based on this distinction, which I'm saying is, is explicitly um, unfounded, especially concerning the unity that Paul speaks of that we're supposed to have in Christ. It's it's unimaginable, but yet it, it's happening. So, um, and here we find it happening in, in the first century Judaism. The synagogue of the freedmen. So, they're kind of leading this dispute and, and challenging this miracle worker, Stephen. Verse 10. It says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they challenge him. But they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit. And so now we see explicitly that Stephen was not simply doing table ministry. He wasn't even simply to serve uh, uh, using the miraculous. But he's also here speaking and preaching Christ, which is what brings about these challenges from these Jews. That They're stumbling over the preaching of Christ and so we also see the grace of God, obviously working through Stephen. It, it's been mentioned that he had the grace of God three times over. And now we see this grace working in his life. He's able to refute all of these accusations, refute all these challenges, these arguments that these Jews are bringing against him. It says that they can't withstand his wisdom. Uh, Stephen is, is ready. Stephen has these uh, James White level arguments just ready to go, right? Just, <laughs> that's how I think about it. He's just, he's just shooting down. He's irrefutable. His, his argumentation is, is unmatched. They can't answer his arguments. It says, nor could they match the spirit with which he spoke. And everybody's taking spirit there as, as capital S, spirit. They, they can't match the spirit with which he spoke. The Spirit of God is working through Stephen. And so you have unmatchable debate skills going on from uh, Stephen. You have the Spirit of God working in his preaching and in his rebuttals to these, to these challenges. And so really you have 
then if you want to count the miracles, you have the ultimate evangelist here in, in Stephen. Um, the Spirit of God, the wisdom, the miraculous working through him. But this is what's interesting is despite all of that, and it's, just, it's the same as it was with Jesus, same as with the apostles before him, uh, despite all of that, the people aren't converted. The people don't, re- it's, 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 it's crazy. The people don't repent. And, and although they're seeing the miraculous, although they know their Bibles, and when Stephen is making his argumentation, which was certainly biblical, right? Um, they, they don't repent. They, they continue to fight and to remain enslaved. And I think what we see here is the, uh, the uncanny, the amazing power of this slave master that is called sin. These people are enslaved to sin and, and their slave master, sin, is a greedy slave master. Sin won't, sin won't release his slaves for a billion dollars. He's greedy. Um, and so unless the great emancipator comes through town and just so happens to want a desire to visit Sin's plantation and, and take his slaves by force, they just stay enslaved and they never know of the great emancipator that's, that's working in the cities nearby. He's only just kind of like a fable character that they hear around the campfires, and so these slaves just keep on working. They just keep working the fields, never, never knowing that, that the Emancipation Proclamation has already been announced and that they could be freed. They just keep on fighting. And so sin, the slave master, instead of fearing that this emancipator might come by his plantation since the rumors have been happening that he's been seen in this very city, He decides to make up some lies against these miracle workers. That sounds like it'll work, right? Like, these guys are doing miracles and we want to stop them. Let's make up some lies. That'll that'll, that'll do the trick. So, verse 11. The slaves keep on working against Stephen. It says in verse 11 that they secretly instigated men who said... We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Moses and God. And so you're pretty desperate when you can't win the arguments. You have to work up some false witnesses to make false accusations against your opponents. And again, it's almost like I'm sensing deja vu again. Like all this has happened, right? Carlos, where where have we heard all this before? Like, why does this all seem like deja vu? There's miracle workers, and the Jews are opposing them, and they have to bring up false witnesses and false charges, right? All this has happened before. Jesus. Yes, exactly. Jesus even said, if they hate me, they will hate you. And so how insane is sin? Just think about the reality of these Jews being there, seeing the, 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 the good works of Stephen, the, heal, the miraculous healing of Stephen, the preaching of the good news, the ability to answer all of their argumentation right from the Bible and prove that Jesus is in fact the Christ. And yet they just keep, they keep on in their op- uh, opposition. And this whole play that they're doing, it didn't work with the previous miracle workers, right? They... They brought this against Jesus. Um, they kill him. Jesus goes ahead and just rises from the dead. That didn't, didn't work. Um, the apostles are going around doing the miraculous, doing good deeds. They arrest them. They beat, and, and what happens? An angel comes and frees them from the jail. These plays don't work, but they just keep on. It, it's like the scene out of uh, Genesis where, you know, these guys are at Lot's door and They've been blinded. And instead of thinking, wow, I I must be doing something wrong here. God just blinded all of us. They just continue in their insane opposition, right, to to, to godliness. And so, yeah, it's, it's really amazing to see the reality of sin and, and the slavery that the reality is there with with being enslaved to sin. So, notice this accusation here that's being made. These men are saying, 
We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Kind of tuck that in, in your mind for next time. Um, I know it's hard to tuck things in your mind for a, whatever, a month from now. And it, but I'll, I'll remind us, um, because I think those accusations that they're making are kind of important to remember when we get to the next chapter and we hear Stephen's speech, Stephen's sermon to these guys, to the Jews, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, because if you've ever read through that chapter, it just kind of seems like you don't really understand what the point of what Stephen's trying to make. It just seems like he's kind of repeating a lot of historical facts about Israel's, you know, um, past. But when you kind of put this together with the accusations that they're making, you kind of see what, what he's trying to, to get at and, and kind of some of the points. I think he's kind of answering these accusations, and, and, and I'll try to make that clear as we go through there, but I think Stephen's discourse really is answering some of these accusations. So he says, or they say, these false witnesses, um, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Drop down real quick to verse 13, because here more explicitly, it says they set up these false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So maybe let's first address this language of blasphemy. Like he, They're saying he's blaspheming Moses and God. Now, we're all kind of familiar with like blaspheming God, right? We're, we're familiar with the commandment that says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. We kind of associate that with blasphemy, taking the Lord's name, using it in a way that um, is kind of trite and not, not fitting and not appropriate. Um, Exodus 27 sa- uh, says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And if you remember the fifth uh, commandment is the first commandment with a promise, but this commandment is the first commandment with a threat. It says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Out of all those commandments, God adds a threat behind this one, a sobering threat uh, that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so we're familiar with that language of blasphemy, right? We kind of associate blasphemy with that, that sin. But how can Moses be blasphemed, right? Are they, is, he, is Stephen just tritely saying Moses' name? and So he's blaspheming. Well, a couple chapters later, after the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, there it says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of the people. And so the commentators kind of point to this broader sense of blasphemy where you're kind of you're cursing one of the leaders speaking ill of them you're speaking wrongly of them just like we would say when somebody speaks wrongly about God we say quit blaspheming God by the way you're speaking of him same thing with with Moses and it was actually a sin to curse the ruler of the people and and Moses certainly would have been seen as qualifying as one of the rulers of the people of Israel and so this is, this is the broader sense of the word blasphemy. They, they hear Stephen, which of course he wasn't. Stephen wouldn't have been saying Moses was bad and the law is wrong. And he wasn't using that kind of language. But this is what they're hearing. This is how they're interpreting uh, the preaching of Stephen. So, just as with Jesus before him, they're, they're interpreting the teachings of Jesus that's conveyed through Stephen to not be fulfillment language of the teachings of Moses, but, but contradictory and even blasphemous. And so, as always, the Jews are just, they're just missing it. They, they, they had no expectation that there would be this fleshly temple that would become this, the once-for-all eternal sacrifice for sin. They had no expectation of something like that. And so, when that is being preached by Stephen and being taught, they, they don't know what to do with that. They, um, they, they're re- repelled by the, the language. Because you, you have to realize that the Jews idolized the temple. It became an idol, and that's, that really was 
an aspect of the great sin that they had was they couldn't see the fulfillment because they so idolized the temple. And, and Stephen's going to, in his sermon, I think, address that, that, that idolatry that they have. Uh, they say that he's blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses. They said that he's changing the customs that Moses had given to us. Now, we don't have record of the, the sermons, the teaching that Stephen was doing before he's uh, confronted here. But we can imagine some of the things that Stephen was teaching that would have led these Jews to think something like, whoa, 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 you're changing you're changing the customs that Moses, that Moses gave to us. What is this you're saying that Jesus is our Sabbath rest? That we're not day keeping anymore? That, that Jesus is, that, that we're resting in a person now instead of a day? That would not have rung true to their ears because they idolized some of these laws. Jesus being this greater prophet than Moses that was to come the Jews would have thought, who, who can be greater than Moses, right? They, this this wouldn't, have, wouldn't have rang true in their ears. Jesus making all foods clean, of course, symbolizing the reality of Gentile inclusion, that the Gentile, the great blasphemy, as we'll see how the Jews re, revolt at the preaching of Gentile inclusion. That's, they hate that. They hate that. They idolize their kind of unique place in the people of God. Um, What about this teaching that Stephen's preaching, this blasphemous teaching that Jesus has obtained our righteous standing before God, and it's not our personal faithfulness to Moses that's our ground in our standing before God. Um, And in in case, like I said, the Jew, and it's not mentioned here yet, but... um, Obviously, I think Stephen would have, been, would have been confronting the reality of the idolatry that these Jews had for these sacred spaces. Um, they, 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 there was a great idolatry over um, the blessings that they had received from God, and they idolized them, but Stephen would have been confronting them with all of these realities, the reality that Jesus, by the Spirit, brings us to God no matter where you are. It's not on this mountain. It's not in Jerusalem any longer. Wherever the eye of faith is looking to Jesus Christ, that man has communion with God. All of these things brought about the, the hatred against Stephen from these Jews. Uh, the Jews idolized the shadows. And um, they did this over and over and over and over. And I think that's why, as, as Stephen goes in his sermon, it's such a lengthy sermon giving so many examples of Israel's past that I think he's bringing up all of these good things, all of these blessings from God, all of these prophets, all of these, these, uh, these men who were given to Israel that became idolized. They idolized all of these blessings from God. And so they missed the greatest blessing the greatest blessing of all, holding on to these types and shadows. Um, Okay, verse 12. Verse 12, the synagogue of the freedmen, so they're not able to handle Stephen. They can't handle them themselves, so they bring in some reinforcements here in verse 12. Verse 12 says that they stirred up the people, this is the first time that the people are mentioned as being stirred up against the, 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 the apostles and the early church has been a blessing to the people. The people have been, um, nothing but good things have been said by the people about the apostles until now. Now they're stirring up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. Now, Stephen, just like his master, just like the apostles before him, he's been seized. He's being brought before the council. This is the Sanhedrin. And they're going to question him. Now, this is interesting, though, because we've said that this has happened to Jesus. This has happened to the apostles. But Stephen here is given an, an additional argument. He's given an additional 
argument that not even Jesus or the apostles had when they stood before the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 15. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That didn't happen when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. That didn't happen when the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin. And so you think, wow, everybody saw this. They all saw it. Did they repent? No, they they didn't repent. But they all saw this. They all saw the witness here that God was giving to Stephen. He had the face like an angel, which you can only assume had had to be radiating the glory of God, the grace of God. It was visible. They all saw it, whatever this was. But what's interesting here is you think about, again, the accusations that was made. Stephen's been blaspheming Moses. Well, whose face radiated before the people? There's only one other person. God gave this blessing to Moses, the face that radiated amongst the people. And so a very similar, if not the same, blessing is given to Stephen in front of all these people who are saying, hey, this guy blasphemes Moses. Well, God says... Look at his face. He has the same face as Moses. His face is, looks like the face of an angel. And so I think that's, that's very interesting that um, this one who's being accused of blaspheming Moses has this shared blessing. It's really just one more, you could say, irrefutable argument that, that Stephen himself looks like Moses. He's being linked to Moses through this divine sign um, and yet again, this is, this is where I had it. The guys are just still like trying to knock down Lot's door, you know, trying to get in despite the, despite the miraculous. So, Stephen's before the Sanhedrin, Stephen's before the council. It's kind of where we'll end. We'll pick up with Stephen's sermon to them. Uh, that's going to be tricky. Um, an entire chapter is dedicated to this sermon which is interesting in and of itself. But I kind of just had a note here to think about the reality that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is here in the midst, um, certainly, I think, seeing all of this. Um, I, I, I wondered, you know, as we'll get to, to see Paul throughout the book of Acts, and, you know, <clears throat> Paul, it says, he's debating with whoever's in the, in the marketplace. You know, he's debating with the Jews. And so many times it just says that. Paul, you know, is, is proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And we're always like, oh, I, wish, I wish they would have included, like, exactly what Paul was saying. Like, what text was he using? What arguments was he using? You know, I, I want to use those arguments. I wonder, as Paul is here, hearing the defense of Stephen, uh, hearing these irrefutable arguments from Stephen, I wonder how many of these same arguments Paul ends up using himself, you know, in his debates with, with the Jews. That's, that's an interesting thought. Um, the other thing I thought about was, I wonder how, if this face of Stephen was just burned into the memory of the Apostle Paul, you know, because he's going he's gonna to kill Stephen. And you think about Paul's life after Christ and as he's ministering and um, you just wonder how often this, this radiating face appears in his mind. And it either really, really stumbles him, you know, um, to think about the, of what he did to such, a, such a, a worker for Christ, such a godly man. Either that or he sees that radiating face in, in his given peace thinking, surely Stephen is in the presence of Christ, despite what I did to him, right? Like, it, maybe that gave him comfort, thinking um, God's will was done, um, something, something like that. But um, Paul's, Paul's going to come. We're going to get plenty of Paul. Um, now, Luke is dedicating a lot of text to our deacon Stephen here. Uh, as I said, uh, Luke does not dedicate anywhere near the amount of text to any of Paul's sermons, to any of Peter's sermons. But this deacon, Stephen, is going to get an entire 60-verse chapter of meticulous recording of maybe everything that he said here as he's preaching 
this speech before the council. And so Stephen certainly is an exceptional deacon, if we can use that language of him already. Uh, a deacon who the Lord used mightily, although for a very short, short while. Um, maybe, this, maybe this was his only sermon. He got to preach one sermon. So be thankful for every sermon you get to preach. Stephen only got to shine for a short while and got to glorify God through preaching for a short while. Um, and so maybe other than that, I just, I just had a note here to, to mention how Acts, the book itself, is kind of an interesting book. It's, it's, it's certainly an important book, but for as important as it is, it's often an overlooked book. Um, I think because, especially as the farther we go on, it, it, it's more of like a history account. It's more of just a play-by-play history of uh, sequential things that, that, that's going on. It's, it's kind of like a lot of uh, Old Covenant books, you know, that we don't ever read, you know, because it's just kind of historical accounting of the people of Israel. Maybe we don't find it interesting. We don't, um, there's not as much maybe theological discussion. It's just history. And so we don't, we don't read it. It seems like Acts kind of becomes that book. You know, you have the Gospels, right? We go to the Gospels because we want to see Jesus, right? Jesus is there. We see what he's doing. We hear what he's saying. It's literally quoting him, right? We go to the Gospels for those things. We're in the epistles. We live in the epistles because there all of everything's worked out for us. All the theology, all the doctrines worked out for us. Like this is what all of that meant. And it lays it out for us. And so we're there all the time. But for some reason, like we're never in Acts, right? And although it's, this book is huge, and Luke dedicated so much, uh, Luke, uh, Luke's writings are such a huge part of our New Testaments. Um, it really, it's the transition from Jesus' teaching ministry and the apostles explaining all that and working all that out. But we don't get to the epistles. We don't get to Paul writing in those things without going through all the kind of hard and ugly at times uh, struggle that is the book of Acts, but that that is what that is what the book of Acts is. It gets us to um, a place in time where the church is able to have time to work all these things out, right? And Paul has time to sit in a prison and write these letters and and, and work these things out for the churches. So, real quickly, I have two two words of kind of application, two words of takeaway for us from the example of Stephen. Number one, obviously, seek to be used like Stephen. Desire to be a man or woman that is highly esteemed amongst the people of God. Right? That was a qualification to be a deacon. Stephen was spoken of well by all of the church, and he lived a life that was worthy to be spent for the kingdom of God. God show you, you're worthy to die for me. You're worthy to go preach that sermon and, and, and suffer for me. Be somebody who's, who God would choose to be spent for his kingdom. Second and lastly, don't be discouraged when your evangelism doesn't work. Don't be discouraged when people don't receive your uh, encouragement to point people to Christ, to point people to the Word of God, to point people to the Church of God. Like I said, Stephen repeatedly, it says, was full of the Holy Spirit and of power and of wisdom. They could not refute his arguments. Everything he could, You couldn't give better biblical arguments than Stephen was giving. He was doing miracles. And none of these people that he's dealing with repented. None of them. It doesn't say any of them did. Maybe this seed was being planted in, in Paul's heart, right? But it doesn't bring any fruit in Stephen's ministry. Stephen dies preaching a spirit-indwelt sermon that nobody repented to, you know? Like, so take comfort in that. Um, people are slaves. They're enslaved. Um, they, don't, they don't know. They, they can't even imagine that there's freedom. They've never heard of anybody really being freed they're completely, they don't know that the great emancipator has, has been freeing people and that he's moving in their city, right? They, they're seemingly unaware of this. They're, they're just blind and ignorant. Um, so 
I say that just to uh, kind of comfort you. I know we were all with family, and if you got to share the gospel, and, and, and you probably prayed some of those evangelistic prayers, you know, trying to point people to Christ, and said everything you could say, worked it in as much as you could in every conversation, and, and maybe your family is still not believing, and you didn't see any fruit, but don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by that. Um, God saves who he wants to save. We're just supposed to share the message. Uh, we pray for them and uh, take comfort in that. That's, people didn't repent at the preaching of Stephen. They may not repent at your preaching. Our preaching is certainly not as good as his was. So um, take comfort in that. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness once again. Lord, I'm always thankful to finish a teaching, Lord, and you provided, and um, we pray that you'll bless the rest of our day, Lord, bless our brother Tafik as he brings the word to us again, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for, for saving us, for bringing us here, Lord, I thank you that our families, Lord, are all here, Lord, that we get to hear your word Sunday after Sunday, Lord, we pray that your word would be heavy upon us, Lord, that we would, as we hear the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would, because it is the very word of God, Lord, that we would listen rightly, Lord, that we would heed the words, that we would not think of what's happening here less than what it is, Lord, but you're speaking to your people, Lord. This is the church is your creation. The church is your idea. The preaching of your word is, this is what you have for us, Lord. Let us take heed of for this day. Let us be thankful, Lord. Let us listen out of joy. Give us reverence, Lord, for the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.